For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The leader of the Mental Health and Substance Abuse Department is leaving the job. After 13 years, Terry White announced this week she is leaving as commissioner. Ryan, what do you think of this announcement? Well, I think that, you know, for months now, there's been speculation as to whether or not Commissioner White would continue on. Governor Stitt has made it uh, you know, pretty clear that he wants his own people in these positions. And, you know, I think that uh, even in spite of Commissioner White being one of the most decorated and, and lauded public servants in the state of Oklahoma, Governor Stitt didn't put her there. And I think that at the end of the day, that played a lot into it. Now, as for her career in public service, we're talking about somebody who's you know, probably close to two decades, you know, even prior to the, the Department of Mental Health. You know, she had other stints in other state agencies. Whenever I first started working in state government at the state Senate as an intern, she was a staffer over in the state Senate. Um, there aren't very many folks that have the kind of resume that Commissioner White has put together. Uh, the, the impact on millions of Oklahomans' lives uh, that she can look back and know that she has made a positive impact on their life. And on the topic of mental health and substance abuse services in Oklahoma, you know, the, the ability to talk about these things, this has become one of the premier agencies in Oklahoma. And everything from the opioid litigation that's happening right now uh, to harm reduction legislation that's going to make its way through the Capitol this year, what Commissioner White has done in that agency will, you know, uh, I think uh, echo for, for a very long time to come. She should be very proud of what she's done, and we should all be grateful for her service. Neva. Well, I mean, clearly this is one of the largest state agencies, a $400 million budget, I think around 1,800 employees. I mean, this this is certainly an agency that uh, was one of the five that the governor was uh, uh, given uh, the ability to name, uh, name the uh, person in charge. And I think it is interesting, as Ryan said, that there had been really, a lot of discussion all through the past year about the fact that uh, uh, it did not appear that uh, uh, Terry White was going to be the long-term pick of the governor, but that there wasn't a very, uh, it certainly wasn't a quick transition Mm -hmm. uh, in that post. And now we see that it's the deputy uh, that is coming in uh, to take over in an interim position. So it doesn't uh, yet appear clear uh, who the long-term person is that's going to be the governor's pick. And I think uh, that kind of unsettled of a positioning in an agency that size certainly uh, is going to be something that even I think will affect lawmakers as they start to talk about the, uh, the the budgeting and the appropriations process and and that's been something you know quite frankly that has been uh, kind of there have been differing points of view in terms of uh, the management of that agency uh, uh, it, it's been suggested that uh, 90% of her department funding really went you know exclusively to prevention and services that sort of thing some argue that 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 is too high a figure that there's a much more significant administrative uh, uh, kind of an administrative side to that that's not really been uh, factored in so uh, will the will the lawmakers use this as an opportunity to kind of really get in and 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 delve into the uh, to to the agency and see what needs to what needs to be done. I mean, no one questions the fact that mental health is a huge issue in the state of Oklahoma and how we provide those services and what we do going forward is something that is of interest to everyone. Do you think that uh, usually the agency head is the head lobbyist, as it were, for their own agency when they go out to lawmakers? Not having someone there and certainly not having Terry White there, will this have an impact on maybe the budget? 
I mean, they, they have other folks out there. You know, the, you know, they have people that work within the agency. Uh, you know, Sean Wallace will be out at the Capitol representing them some. But it's it's really hard to replace the relationships that Commissioner White had with mm-hmm. lawmakers. I mean, she's been there longer than all of these lawmakers. I mean, there's not a single lawmaker serving right now that's been there in that position as long as she has. I mean, she understands the agency. She understands the budgeting process. Uh, she understands the legislature, the way it works, uh, you know, probably better than most legislators. And so she's been a, an invaluable resource for lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. Um, and without her out there in that official capacity, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if she's not out there in, in some manner. I mean, mm-hmm. she cares about this stuff. I mean, this is not just a paycheck for her. This is really her life's work. And I, I don't think that we'll, uh, you know, she, she may be out of this position, but I don't think it'll be long before we see her back in the arena. And I think it is interesting. She didn't indicate that she planned on staying in the state, uh, that she planned on staying involved. So in what capacity, as Ryan says, that, that will be uh, something I think people will watch with great interest. The leader of the state house says despite what Governor Stitt believes, the gaming compacts did in fact renew at the end of the year. House Speaker Charles McCall says the compacts didn't expire and they are in place for the next 15 years. Neva, does this signal a battle in the coming legislative session? I don't, well, I think it, it signals a big problem in, the, in this uh, upcoming session because of the impact of uh, this $150 million, uh, that's in the budget. I mean, uh, uh, based on figures from last year, I mean, the uncertainty of what's going on, I mean, uh, is causing, a, I think, a great deal of consternation among many lawmakers. And, and what we see now is nothing new. I mean, I think the, uh, I think the speaker uh, has been pretty clear all along what his, uh, what his view of the, of the compacts automatically renewing for 15 years uh, that that's been his position, and now we see that uh, tribal leaders have been meeting with all of the l- legislative leadership, a Democrat and Republican. And what we're hearing, uh, basically, put forward across the board among lawmakers is that they that they uh, line up on on the on the on the tribal side mm-hmm. of this issue, not with the governor. So, um, is the governor going to do something different? How is this going to change in terms of finally getting some resolution, or is it just going to be a matter of waiting for? the courts to make that determination, I think the, the quicker this, this point gets settled early in the session, the better for everyone. And while the Speaker disagreed with the governor, the Democratic leader of the House agreed with the Speaker and saying, <laughs> right. yeah, this is, yeah. This is day, exactly. day exactly. Well, and, you know, I think that, you know, beginning in 2020, as soon as the compacts automatically renewed, which they did, I, I think the, the governor's negotiating position has really been in hot water. And his response to that is just make the water hotter for himself. And and now, not only does he have a legal problem, uh, but he's got a political problem. He's uh, going to increasingly be standing alone because while he may feel as a statewide elected official, you know, he has some insulation from the political power of the tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma, which, I mean, he may very well. I mean, it, it's difficult to say that, you know, this one thing means that he doesn't get reelected governor. But the political power of each and every one of those tribal governments, in particular legislative dis- districts, is overwhelming. And the lawmakers there recognize it, not only the political power, but the economic benefit that their constituents receive, you know, tribal and non-tribal constituents. And so I know that we're going to talk about the state of the state in a little bit, um, but I, I wonder how much of this the governor will bring up at the state of the state because... He's he we know that he's lonely right now, but if he mentions this in the state of the state, you know, that's kind of like this barometer, you know, lawmakers get up and they applaud for stuff they don't and they sit on their hands for stuff that they uh, that they don't like. 
Well, I think that if he mentions this, he's going to be he's going to feel real lonely, and we'll see kind of like this optics of of where he really stands right now. So he has a political problem and a legal problem. Well, and he if he mentions some of the things that he's thrown out uh, in recent months um, and with respect to this conversation about allowing sports betting or allowing uh, commercial operators to come in from outside the state, I mean, those things would require legislative uh, input and legislative approval, and to infuse that into a state of the state or just the general conversation in an ongoing manner, uh, since it's already been part of his discussion in the last couple of months, I think, again, becomes very problematic with many of these lawmakers, uh, not only uh, talking about the session and what they have to deal with, but also going back home and many of them standing for re-election later this year. Well, this give, also give the, the tribes uh, almost a chance to show what the power they have in the state. They, they didn't have power for, you know, well, 100 years. And recently, uh, they, they have kind of stretched their power with uh, the United for Oklahoma and, mm-hmm. and actually coming out and going to the lawmakers. Is this a chance for the tribes to go, well, wait a minute, we are actually a little bit of a powerhouse in the state of Oklahoma? A, 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 big, a big powerhouse. I mean, they're telling their stories and they're telling these stories in rural Oklahoma in, in particular. And, and they really, you know, this is something that really cuts across partisan divides. I mean, you see, like we said, mm-hmm. we saw the, the Democratic leader of the House standing with the Republican Speaker of the House. They're, they're united on this. And uh, if you're a lawmaker, you're looking at, and Neva said, the $150 million that's in the budget right now right. that, that uh, we're depending on as a state for revenue, because this is not the budget year that the governor inherited. This is going to be a lot harder. So there's $150 million there that he's threatening with his rhetoric and his litigation right now. But on top of that, if you're a lawmaker, you've got jobs in your district. You've got economic investment in your district. You know, things that are outside of that state budget, but nevertheless are critical to those small towns. And, you know, I think that if you're a lawmaker and you say, well, do I stand with these tribal governments that are investing in my constituents or do I stand with the governor who has just, you know, kind of blundered his way through this negotiation process in a way that's just, like I've said before, it's really confounding to me because well, the governor is such a good negotiator in many other respects. And this, he's just tripped all over himself. Well, and when you talk about rural Oklahoma, it's not just rural Oklahoma. I mean, metropolitan, right. yeah. I mean, the major cities, I mean, when you see the impact across the board, I mean, it's, it is uh, irrefutable. It is something that uh, I think the governor, I mean, clearly has kind of stepped back away from. He hasn't tried to engage on, you know, kind of making any points r- relative to the impact, I mean, of um, of the of the tribal nations on you know the economy, on jobs, on the state of Oklahoma, and so it will be interesting to see. Is there a pivot? I mean, clearly, there's not been um, an interest in basically saying what simply from the very outset was. Please come to the table, yeah. say that you acknowledge that they automatically renew, then let's sit down, and we are willing to negotiate and renegotiate, uh, including uh, some of the uh, some of the fee schedules. So taking that all off the board, it could be, I mean, is it going to be a win-win? Is it going to be a lose-lose? What, what's, what is this going to look like uh, at the end of the session? And I think that's really going to be a significant question for the governor uh, long-term in his uh, you know, political future. And it seems like that could have all been solved last July. Instead of coming out with an editorial saying they don't renew and we're going to have to do this. If he just said, hey, they're coming up. Why don't we all sit down and discuss if this is the best thing for Oklahoma? If Governor Sid had said that, we would not be in a situation right now. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's right. I think that the I, I just I really don't know if the governor underestimated the, the political and legal acumen of the tribes. Uh, I don't know if he overestimated the, the state's position or where he thought that the, the electorate was here. 
but he played a game that got to you know a brinksmanship that, that put us up to a point where there wasn't going to be a pivot. I mean, it was you know December 31st, and if he was really going to do something, I mean, his ultimate move could have been to shut down gaming at Remington Park. And if he would have shut down gaming at Remington Park, then he might have had an argument that the compacts didn't automatically renew. But when he didn't do that, because if he'd done that, I mean, that, was, that, that would have been devastating uh, to that economy that depends on the Remington Park and Remington Park gaming. But he didn't do that. And when he didn't do that, they automatically renewed. And here we are. And I, I, it's just, I don't understand how we got to this point. And part of me, I, I hope that this isn't the case, but I, you know, I hope that uh, we're not just dealing with ego here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just everybody set it aside. And, and as I've said, you know, the governor gets the free advice from me here and, you know, take it or leave it. But, you know, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And, he just lost here. And the best thing that he can do for himself and for Oklahoma is just to recognize that step back, recognize that they've automatically renewed and, you know, begin to rebuild the trust between his administration and these governments. The state board of education passed rules onto the legislature designed to curtail four day school weeks. The schools would have to prove higher standards to make it harder for schools to move to or stay under four day weeks. Ryan, what do you think of these new rules? Yeah, I think that the the rules are going to make it incredibly difficult for the vast majority of schools that currently have four day school school weeks. The legislature has to approve these rules. I suspect that we're going to have a lot of conversation in the legislature about things like local control. I hope that the conversation will ultimately be around you know, what are the pedagogical benefits of a four-day school week, if any? I mean, we've, you know, I'm, I'm in o- the Oklahoma City Public School District uh, and, you know, kind of unrelated, you know, they're talking about changing start times uh, for elementary and middle school and high school students because studies have demonstrated a correlation between start time and academic performance. You know, we've seen uh, where they've, th- you know, there have been studies where there's been, um, you know, some connection between a four-day school week and improved academic performance that some people are looking at, but correlation and causation are two different things. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, I think lawmakers and educators need to come up with an idea of, can you do a four-day school week in a way that doesn't hurt kids? And it actually may help them. If you can make that, then let's make the conversation around that. They shouldn't make the, they shouldn't have to be making these decisions around budgetary issues. Though. Neva. Well, and I'm not sure it's budgetary issues. I mean, w- this was a unanimous uh, vote in favor uh, of this action by the State Board of Education. And really, when you start to look at it, I mean, they qualified it. They talked about that it is important to understand that local control is very important, that it is something that we need to ensure the best outcomes for the students. And I think the structure that they put in place, quite frankly, I mean, to the average person, I mean, if you say that if you want to operate a four-day school week, that you have to have at least a C in academic uh, growth in math and and, uh, English languages on your report card at the the end of the year, that doesn't seem like a high bar. Uh, And quite frankly, to say that no school in the bottom 5% uh, will be uh, allowed or would qualify for shortened school weeks, the four day week. Uh, to me, that is demonstrates that they don't want to lower the bar. And so I think what they've set in place is something that is uh, that makes sense. And you have you have the opportunity. They used an illustration of uh, Granite Elementary School that uh, received an A for high test scores on a, on a four day uh, school week, where you have other schools that argue that basically 
Um, there's just nothing. I mean, you shouldn't have any of these qualifications because if you do, we're not going to be able to meet them. Well, that raises a bigger question. If it if you can't meet them in four days, you may not even be able to meet them in five days. The issue is what's best for the students and getting them the best possible education. And I think that has to be first and foremost in all of this conversation. Yeah. And while test scores are important, also some of these schools are saying that this is their ability to uh, to get more get better teachers because they can actually recruit teachers saying, hey, you're going and get a three-day weekend you they they don't have the money to see in some of these rural schools to pay high-paying teachers so this was their opportunity that's what the, their they've been educating be. for a hundred years i mean it's it's it, i think those are bogus arguments just like the argument that somehow there's this great great cost savings when uh, when you look at the uh, when you look at the reports that are out there they suggest that at the most you're probably seeing five percent uh, in terms of savings uh, in a budget that at any level and any even the smallest school districts we're talking you know we're talking thousands and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars I mean in these budgets and so yes they need to take all of this into consideration but to say it's a money issue exclusively to say that it's a recruitment issue exclusively I think those again are kind of the arguments coming out of the education establishment that don't they, they want to dictate all of the terms and then not be responsible for the results and that's the bottom line is what are we what can we demonstrate is happening in the education of the children in these districts and, mm-hmm. you know, go ahead well, I was gonna say you know, Neva pointed out the you know the savings you know uh, were a lot. I mean, they're a lot lower than I thought that they were going to be. But in some of those schools, if you know uh, a three to five percent saving means, especially if you know, and some maybe a larger budget in, among those smaller schools, you know, a hundred thousand uh, dollars. I mean, if that's your make or break, uh, then then we've got budget. We've got a budget situation, and that's you know to the extent that any local school district or the state's uh, Department of Education or the legislature, if they're looking at a four day school week. You know, I, I agree with Neva in the sense that it needs to really be about the students, what's best for the students. And if if we're making, if a school district is saying we've got to do this and we don't know that it's best for the students, but it's best for our budget, uh, and then I, that's a, some ancillary benefit to the students themselves, well, then that is a budgetary issue. And, you know, the school shouldn't be put in that position. The idea of a four-day school week, whether you like it or not, really needs to be debated on its merits in terms of, you know, the benefit to the student and not how does it affect the bottom well, line. Well, and also needs to be debated on the fact that it, if if schools want local control, which they have, they have a local school board, local superintendent, if they have the ability at the local level to make these decisions, then make them wisely and do and, and again, well, I think what the state board has said is we're giving you a structure and parameters in place that allows for, you know, for all of these issues really to be addressed in, in a very uh, legitimate way. But at the end of the day, what we want to see are the, are the results. We want to see the ability of these schools to show that they are properly educating the children of Oklahoma. Well, there's this, there's this interesting political context, too, that I think kind of informs some of the conversation that's happening out at the Capitol, and maybe not in a productive way, but... When a lot of these schools went to four-day school weeks, it happened in, in the midst of a budget crisis that ultimately led to the teacher walkout. And you know th- that was there were a lot of there's a lot of national attention on whether or not this was embarrassing for Oklahoma if it was tarnishing our reputation. And I think a lot of lawmakers saw that four-day school week as you know a, a way to dig in at the legislature and say they're not funding us and they're funding us so inadequately we can only go four days a week that. Any talk about this is, you know, mixed up in that and how you felt about that event, you know, one way or the other, how you felt about that event. So there's that context of uh, the politics from a couple of years ago that still haunts this issue and unfortunately may cloud some uh, uh, more productive discussions about 
is this actually yeah. working? Can it actually work? And does it make sense? Well, and, and it also is uh, important, I think, to note that in Oklahoma, we're talking about 86 school districts uh, currently, uh, 184 schools that are u- are in session in this four-day-a-week um, uh, school uh, and that's that is not the that, that's not the majority of schools in Oklahoma. But again, I mean, for those that want to go this direction, they must be able to demonstrate the ability to look at the total picture and then be able to uh, defend the results. Although I did see a thing on Facebook, 186 schools uh, is one of the largest school. If you were to put them all together, it would be one of the largest school districts. If, and they're but all, you're they're talking eighty. Every, but you're, every but you are talking eighty four district. districts, and they're across seventy seven counties across the but state that, of Oklahoma. That means every lawmaker has at least one. Oh, in absolutely. His district, so. No, okay. about, yeah. sure, absolutely. But again, they also have a local school board yeah. uh, that factors into this equation. You know, a local superintendent hired by that school board. I mean, there are many other many other elements to this than just the fact that let's bring it all to twenty third and Lincoln. Let's bring it to the state board of education, and somehow right. they are going to be responsible for. Uh, making the right decision or wrong decision uh, that goes back out across all these districts in Oklahoma. Uh, Governor Stitt is giving his second State of the State address on Monday to kick off the 2020 legislative session. Stitt had a fairly successful session last year, but he is having trouble in his fight over gaming compacts. Neva, any thoughts on what we can expect from this speech? Well, I think, you know, in 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 the first day of the state, I mean, uh, you, you basically uh, probably judge on vision and how you kind of cast your uh, uh, your ideas out there in terms of how you're going to lead and govern, govern which the uh, last year Governor Stitt had very specific proposals, uh, had, had a very specific wish list, uh, much of which the uh, legislature gave him in terms of strengthening, strengthening his position uh, as the chief executive and being able to hire and fire agency heads and, and many of the things that, uh, along that line. But now I think year two, I mean, we now are at a place where people uh, will begin to look and judge on the results. I mean, they will want to, they will uh, begin to uh, see, you know, what were the expectations and how were they met and uh, to what what degree the governor when he talked in his first day of the state he said that basically three things had to happen you know to be able to uh, uh, to kind of reimagine and uh, uh, kind of uh, have the turnaround that uh, that he was uh, talking about and and you know when you think back to what those three were I mean they were pretty simple but you know the first one was to bring people together I mean we've already talked about uh, the issues in hand uh, that have uh, uh, complicated that uh, to set measurable goals and put metrics in place uh, many you know, many lawmakers are now trying to determine, you know, really where are we in terms of, uh, um, you know, what changes have been made that are measurable in terms of accountability and transparency in government. And then, uh, you know, to uh, uh, to hold everyone uh, inside uh, government and, and in these positions responsible for, uh, uh, for delivering these results. And I think now the governor comes uh, year two to the legislature and has to be uh, very specific. I mean, he's cast the bold vision now where do we get more specific in terms of having some real results and i think uh, i think lawmakers as well as uh, citizens across oklahoma will be very interested to hear the governor's message on monday ryan you know i think that uh during the interim one of the the biggest accomplishments of the governor was that he oversaw the commutation the the, the largest commutation mm-hmm. on a single day in the nation's history um and you know that was uh, as a result of legislation that retroactively applied state question 780 it'll be really interesting to see how he incorporates that into his speech, which he most definitely will. I think that of all of his policy accomplishments uh, during during this uh, short term in, as governor, 
that's got to be at the top and just how satisfying that is to see with the with a stroke of a pen the ability to change an individual's life and the lives of their families and where he sees criminal justice reform going this les- this uh, session because with state question 780 and retroactive application last year not all of that would have happened if some of the legislation that's coming out this year were in law because there are efforts this year to peel back parts of state question 780 i think this is an opportunity for the governor to say we can't go back in time. You know, we can't take steps back. We've got to continue to make steps forward. Another big um, uh, question as to what he uh, uh, intends to be able to get done this legislative session is around Medicaid expansion. I mean, we've never really heard a plan from him. I mean, he has talked about wanting to put some alternative proposal out there to the state question, whether or not he is able to do that and get it passed. Um, you know, that's, we've got a new chair of uh, health and public safety over in the Senate. And, you know, I think that, you know, what, what does that look like? You know, what kind of a vision is he going to put forward for Medicaid or not? And then on the, the entire, uh, panoply of state questions, he's been quite vocal and opposition to most, if not all of the state questions that are out there on the ballot right now. Does he incorporate that into his, uh, state of the state and maybe as a call to action to the legislature that the people of Oklahoma don't see their legislature uh, and their elected officials as stepping up to the plate and bringing the reforms out that they really want and if they want to compete with the state question process they maybe need to be a little bit more bold um, like I said earlier it'll be interesting if he mentions gaming compacts at all uh, because I really think that in terms <laughs> of just the focus group of that room it would feel quite lo- lonely up at the dais if, if you're mentioning that and no one is just crickets uh, or maybe even some booze a little mm-hmm. bit. But uh, I think that, uh, that Neva's right. I mean, he, he's got some uh, opportunity for some real specific items that have been kind of lost in the last several months. You know, there's there's been a little, uh, I don't, I don't want to say mission creep, but there's there hasn't been a lot of definition uh, to where he wants to move the state right now. And this is a chance to kind of reset and you know, put his vision out there for the for the legislature. And very quickly, there's also the the budget. He'll put out his gubernatorial budget, uh, executive budget on Monday. There's not going to be much to play with. So. Well, and I think that's going to be interesting because this is where the ability to really partner with the legislature and not make it an adversarial kind of uh, uh, my budget versus you know what uh, what these lawmakers want to do. I think that's going to be very very important, and to the degree that they can bring that together quickly, I mean, uh, is going to be something that you know uh, people will watch with interest. But even going back to some of the issues, the big issues that Ryan talked about, criminal justice and Medicaid expansion, I think, being the top two. I mean, when you start talking about the bail reform and sentencing reform and, and uh, the, the criminal code, and I mean, the major pieces of this that are that are still out there, the mm-hmm. fact that he had a ta- task force that mm-hmm. uh, really didn't come back with, you know, needed more time, wanted um, m- more time for more recommendations, uh, it, whether he gets very specific about what he's going to drill down on and really put some political capital on the line for, I think that's going to be interesting to watch. The Medicaid expansion I think we could see uh, there's there's some feeling that there may be some uh, interesting movement on that here uh, in the next uh, several days with uh, a trip to Washington and whatever the conversation that's going on back there among some governor Republican governors so we may see a very specific proposal come out very quickly uh, with respect to Medicaid expansion and how will that counter the state question that's already out there mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, we've seen poll after poll that shows that uh, that at least at this point uh, that there seems to be broad sentiment among uh, uh, voters to, uh, to to seriously look at this. So the governor's going to have to really look at these things and deal with them very swiftly, I think. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.